0: From the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, this is The Steady Stater, a podcast dedicated to discussing limits to growth in the steady state economy. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brian Check, and today I'll be presenting a unified theory of biodiversity conservation. The central pillar of this theory is the fundamentality of the conflict between economic growth and biodiversity conservation. Yet there's much more to it because if we really want to conserve biodiversity, our understanding of the challenge must encompass ecology, economics, and political science at a minimum. It helps to incorporate some physics, evolutionary theory, and even the philosophy of science. That's what makes it a unified theory. So let's start with some basics. What is biodiversity? Biodiversity is simply the variety of life. This variety spans the spectrum from the molecular level all the way up to the biome. At the molecular level, we have the nucleobases that serve as the building blocks of DNA. These are guanine, adenine, cytosine, and thymine. At the biome end of the spectrum, we have grassland, forest, desert, tundra, ocean, and freshwater. Right around the middle of that spectrum we have the species, which is easily the most policy-relevant unit of biodiversity. It's also fairly common to assess the genome, closer to the molecular end of the spectrum, and the ecosystem, closer to the biome end of the spectrum. But why is the species the focal point for biodiversity conservation? For starters, we can get our minds around the species concept and even get our arms around a typical specimen. It's easy to think about white-tailed deer and whooping cranes as species. You don't need a microscope or a satellite to view them like you would for nucleotides or ecoregions, respectively. Also, species tend to be the most economically and culturally relevant manifestations of biodiversity. Throughout the natural history of humans, innumerable species have provided food, fiber, clothing, and shelter. Virtually every foodstuff today represents harvested or cultivated species of plants and animals. It's not just survival and economics, either. Species are deeply embedded in the storylines and spirituality of tribal cultures and even the major religions. We should probably say a few words about taxonomy to, to put species in the broader context of life. Living organisms are classified among the basic levels of kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. We're all familiar with the plant and animal kingdoms, but we also have kingdoms comprising fungi, protists, and the monera, including bacteria. Now let's take a a quick closer look at the animal kingdom in the USA, where the U.S. Geological Survey maintains a highly advanced taxonomic information system. According to the USGS, we have 24 phyla, 86 classes, 442 orders, over 3,000 families, almost 20,000 genera, or genuses, and 70,401 species. If this sounds like an awfully high number, don't forget the animal kingdom includes insects, crustaceans, spiders, and so on. If you want to think just about vertebrates, then you get the number down to 3,096. That includes 430 mammal species, 789 bird, 376 reptile, 305 amphibian, and 1,196 fish species. Meanwhile, over in the plant kingdom, I'll spare us the breakdown, but we have almost 30,000 species in the USA alone. Worldwide, we have approximately 8.7 million species of all types including somewhere between 1 and 2 million animal species. That's a lot to conserve, isn't it? And we're not doing a very good job of it. Those numbers I listed are dropping fast, and plenty of species are walking ghosts. You've probably heard the phrase, sixth great extinction, to describe this collapse of biodiversity. Unlike the five earlier great extinctions, which were caused by astronomical events such as meteor strikes and geological events such as volcanic eruptions, this sixth great extinction is being caused by one of the species, Homo sapiens. And how exactly is Homo sapiens causing this great extinction? The best way to answer that is to look at the causes of species' imperilment. Now, when we investigate these causes, we find that they're a veritable who's who of the economy. They include agriculture, mining, logging, domestic livestock production, commercial fishing, road construction and maintenance, dams and reservoirs, and of course urbanization, which is a a proliferation and concentration of consumers, labor, manufacturing, and service sectors. Another major cause is the pollution flowing from all this economic activity. Yes, that includes greenhouse gases, with global heating and its effects on ecosystems, yet another substantial cause of endangerment. That last point, I think, deserves a little more attention. You know, today, climate change is viewed as the global environmental threat. It certainly is correct to view it as a huge, even existential threat. The fact is, however, that biodiversity was being put through the ringer long before global heating. First there was overhunting, and then there was habitat loss, plus the toxic effects of all kinds of pollution. Global heating exacerbates all these effects, and in fact, it's it's its own form of habitat loss, as it changes the rules of the game, you might say for the assemblages of species found in any given ecosystem. Global heating destroys the nuanced balance of most ecosystems and allows for the wholesale invasion of non-native species, which then become additional threats to native biodiversity. Folks, the ecological integrity of the planet is unraveling before our very eyes. Well, since we have a unified theory to explore yet, let's look beyond the empirical evidence of endangerment and consider some of the theoretical aspects. First, we recognize that the process of economic production is a process of reallocating natural capital from the old, or we might say original, economy of nature on over to the human economy where that natural capital is converted into producer and consumer goods and services. By natural capital, I'm referring to the natural resources, such as timber, water, soils, minerals, and fisheries. The phrase natural capital should resonate more, though, in the world of business, economics, and public policy. We can also build upon it more readily than with phrases such as natural resources or raw materials. We can describe, for example, how natural capital can comprise a stock or a fund. Consider a pine forest. It's a stock that produces a flow of timber which can be sawn into lumber, an intermediate good, which is then used in the production of final goods such as tables and chairs. If you try to produce too many tables and chairs, however, you will end up cutting the timber at an unsustainable rate. In other words, you will be liquidating the stock. That's not only unsustainable, that's habitat loss, and it's the death knell of many a species. That pine forest is also a natural capital fund from which flows of services derive. For example... The forest provides habitats for numerous bird species, which in turn provide numerous bird watchers the service of one of their favorite pastimes. Similar to the forest as a stock, the overuse of that fund can deplete the quality and quantity of the service. Note that a stock may serve concurrently as a fund. The pine forest is a great example. Rapid drawdown of the stock lumber in this case, may reduce or eliminate the performance and value of the fund, too. And in fact, this is the process at the heart of the loss of so-called ecosystem services. Ecosystems are being used up, not to mention plowed, paved, polluted, etc., for the sake of producing goods, and in the process, all sorts of services such as pollination carbon sequestration, and water filtration are lost. Now obviously, the loss of these ecosystem services, as well as the liquidation of the natural capital stocks, amounts to a dramatic devaluation of the environment that supports our economy. And as any good economist will emphasize, the natural capital stocks and funds fall mostly outside of market operations. That means the liquidation of the stocks and deterioration of funds amount to so-called externalities. They must be dealt with by means other than the market. Meanwhile, economists and even environmental NGOs point with hope to the high values we see estimated for these stocks and funds. They seem to have the fuzzy notion that just because pollination, for example, is estimated to benefit Smithfield County to the tune of 200 million per year Smithfield County will somehow pony up the funding to protect the ecosystem from which the pollinators emanate they also have the even fuzzier notion that that this defensive investment would somehow contribute to gdp in reality land sales do not count toward gdp in fact land conservation has quite the opposite effect, precluding most of the forms of economic activity that would be counted toward GDP. Well, with all those commercial activities in mind, I think it's actually time for a quick non-commercial break with Rick Tibbetts. Hello, Steady Staters. We hope you're enjoying the show. Do you want to know more about the unified theory of biodiversity conservation? You can start with a book published by John Hopkins University Press, The Endangered Species Act: History, Conservation Biology, and Public Policy. Written by our host, Brian Check, along with co-author Paul Kraussman, this book elaborates on the diverse principles introduced in today's episode. It's also been the go-to source for think tanks and policymakers in thinking about ESA reforms. Once again, the title is The Endangered Species Act: History, Conservation, Biology, and Public Policy. Now? Back to the show. Now, dedicated listeners at the steady Stater will see another big problem right away, because they're familiar by now with the trophic theory of money. The trophic theory of money is another central pillar of our unified theory of biodiversity conservation. The trophic theory is that money, money for anything, even defensive expenditures originates via the agricultural surplus at the base of the economy that frees the hands for the division of labor and the exchanging of money. In other words, it's agricultural surplus that makes money a meaningful concept. If you want to know more about it, please listen to the two-part episode on the Trophic Theory of Money from October of 2020. I'm just gonna give you the barest of bones here. We call it the trophic theory of money because we're drawing on principles from the ecological concept of trophic levels. In an ecosystem, we find three basic trophic levels, producers, primary consumers, and secondary consumers. Similarly, in the human economy, we find the same three basic trophic levels, agriculture and extraction, heavy manufacturing, and light manufacturing. And of course, various service providers are scattered throughout these trophic levels, both in the human economy and the economy of nature. Now, a trophic structure is an integrated whole. It's a structured pyramid with limited malleability. Just as the economy of nature doesn't grow without more plant production at the base... Neither does the human economy grow without more agro-extractive surplus at the base. Never has, never can. Meanwhile, all that agricultural and extractive activity has obvious, heavy impacts on the natural capital stocks and funds comprising our natural ecosystems. It's where the rubber meets the road for most species headed toward extinction. Now... If we want our unified theory to be a little less anthropocentric, we ought to remember that Homo sapiens itself is a a part of the economy of nature, or at least what we might call the human-inclusive economy of nature. Then we'd have to recognize the overlapping niches among humans and so many other species. Other species tend to eke out a living with narrower specialized niches, Humans, on the other hand, have this vastly broad niche. For example, we can harvest and cook virtually every edible species on the planet. We can inhabit almost any square meter. Then there's that industrial strength, reallocation of natural capital. This brings us into a state of what evolutionary ecologists refer to as competitive exclusion with a long, long list of other species. In fact, we might say that the human economy grows at the competitive exclusion of non-human species in the aggregate. Now, of course, no unified theory of biodiversity conservation that incorporates the conflict with GDP growth can be complete without considering the process of technological progress. Well, here's the thing about technological progress. It requires massive expenditures on research and development. These R&D expenditures have become so massive that the U.S. government can't even resist including them in GDP itself. And why not? R&D is indeed a highly refined economic activity, a final service of sorts. But hopefully you can see the catch-22 already. R&D is linked at the hip with GDP growth based upon existing levels of technology. Yes, it might raise the bar for future GDP, but only while past GDP has been tearing up the terrain below the bar. Once again, that trophic theory of money comes in handy. If we if we spend over half a trillion dollars per year on R&D, which we do now, That's a hell of a lot of agricultural and extractive activity at the trophic base to free so many intermediate hands for the final production of R&D activity. That's why our unified theory of biodiversity conservation must recognize the fundamentality of the conflict between GDP growth and biodiversity conservation. It's a fundamental conflict because it's based on laws of physics and principles of ecology and cannot be reconciled via technological progress. The unified theory of biodiversity conservation does not entail a wholesale rejection of technology, but it does entail a wholesale rejection of the notion that technological progress can somehow reconcile GDP growth with biodiversity conservation. Certain new technologies can be crucial for well-being, but they all come with the R&D price tag, and if they are used primarily for purposes of further GDP growth, well then, due to that integrated trophic structure of the economy, these new technologies have the net effect of even more reallocation of natural capital from the economy of nature to the human economy. You know, A unified theory ought to contribute in some way to the philosophy of science, no? So let's have a dose of philosophy with an epistemological kicker. We'll start by considering the fact that all these other non-human species, most clearly the vertebrate species, have some level of knowledge. Regardless of how much sentience you grant them, animals know how to do things. Spawning Chinook salmon know how to find their way from the vastness of the Pacific Ocean back to tiny tributaries of the Salmon River in Idaho. Ruby-throated hummingbirds know how to pollinate fruit trees in New York State. Flycatchers everywhere know how to catch flies, mosquitoes, and locusts. We should be quite happy about this non-human knowledge. It helps us in so many ways. Yet, Given our competitive exclusion of non human species in the aggregate, we're losing non human knowledge at an alarming clip. If we're concerned about maximizing useful knowledge, as most philosophers of science in the Baconian tradition should be, well, then we better start realizing that human knowledge is only one form of knowledge. Wiping out non human knowledge to garner more human knowledge is a Faustian bargain. We know not the non-human knowledge we'll miss most. Now I'm going to include just a tad of political science to shore up our unified theory. I recall being prohibited when I served in the headquarters of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service from talking about the conflict between economic growth and wildlife conservation. The political appointees and high-level bureaucrats were deathly afraid of the topic. I think their fears though were really misplaced. Political scientists talk about the types of policy arenas based upon the concentration of the costs and benefits of the policy in question. It's the concentration of these costs or benefits that motivates people to actually do something. It's not hard to get a law passed when benefits are concentrated and costs are diffused. That's why we have so many subsidies. Conversely, you can find yourself in political hot water if the benefits of your proposal are diffused while the costs are concentrated. Let's say you want to shut down old-growth logging in the Pacific Northwest to save the spotted owl. The benefits of this conservation action are highly diffused among our tax-paying citizens, while the costs are concentrated among the likes of Weyerhaeuser, Boise Cascade, and so forth. You can bet they're going to come after you. But now let's consider the issue of economic growth. Advancing the steady-state economy for the sake of biodiversity conservation falls into a classic diffused costs, diffused benefits policy arena, no one instantly profits. Rather, the well-being of all is gradually protected. Politically, I suppose, that's the bad news because it takes a rare form of conviction to act for the common, long-term good. The political good news, though, is that while there may be complaints from Wall Street, K Street, and the Cato Institute, no corporation or even politician is subjected to the brunt of this policy. There's no warehouser in this case motivated enough to do something against the steady-state proposal. So cheer up, steady-staters. You're not going to be targeted by the economic hitman when you write those letters to the editor, speak up at those town halls, or go visit your congressional representatives about our full and sustainable employment act. Tell that to your representatives as well. They may need a reminder of diffuse costs, diffuse benefits policy arenas. Warehouser won't be campaigning against them for acknowledging limits to growth. Furthermore, if you're a tax-paid civil servant in a conservation agency, i go so far as to say that you owe it to us to speak truth to power, all the way up the chains of command to the Secretaries of Agriculture and Interior on the fundamental conflict between economic growth and biodiversity conservation. Once it's a cabinet level discussion, we're much closer to steady statesmanship. Well folks, that about wraps her up. Today we've pondered a unified theory of biodiversity conservation. We've brought together theoretical and empirical evidence from ecology, economics, and political science with bits and pieces of other disciplines between the lines. We've even dabbled in the philosophy of science. But we've been left with one exceptionally salient point. Biodiversity conservation is the steady state economy. I'm Brian Check, and you've been listening to the Steady Stater Podcast. See you next time.